and uh, this is our second uh, session in the book of Hebrews, and uh, we're going to be looking at Jesus being greater than the angels, and we've got Jesus' greater salvation, and Jesus our greater brother, but this week, as I say, we're looking at Jesus greater than the angels. And I wonder, just thinking, uh, to start, have you ever been visited by an angel? Uh, our culture is quite keen on angels, aren't they? Uh, I remember growing up, I used to watch uh, a programme called Highway to Heaven. Does anyone remember that? Had, uh, a guy, the guy out of um, uh, Little House on the Prairie uh, was on it, and he uh, uh, worked as a, an angel, and he, his name was Jonathan. Uh, ring any bells? Um, but uh, he hadn't been quite good enough on Earth, so he'd sort of had to do all this uh, different stuff in uh, on the Earth as an angel uh, to try and make up for it. Uh, if you haven't seen that one, a modern day equivalent's more like Touched by an Angel. Uh, have you seen that one where you've got an Irish angel that's... No? Um, well, basically it's a group of angels that go around doing good. And the angel of death is called Andrew. Uh, interesting enough, just randomly. Um, but if you're not into the TV programmes, think about songs. Our culture has lots of songs with angels in, doesn't it? Uh, best known song of the 90s? Angels by Robbie Williams. Uh, one of the best known songs of the noughties? Uh, You're Beautiful by James Blunt which has this line in it, there must be an angel with a smile on her face when she thought up that I should be with you. We won't even go there uh, critiquing that, will we? Um, But a large chunk of our culture is actually quite happy with the idea of angels. Uh, But they're extraordinarily confused about what they are. Uh, People think that they're what you become when you die, but they're not. People think that they've all got wings, and they haven't. Uh, People think they decide our destinies, but they don't. And people think of them completely disattached from God and the rest of the Bible, and they're not. And the first readers of Hebrews were not confused about angels, interestingly. Um, They actually had quite a good knowledge of the Old Testament. They were quite there, theologically speaking. Their problem wasn't confusion. And that's why there's no real attempt in this passage to answer the confusion about angels that we might have. There's no evidence of them worshipping them, though people did in the rest of uh, the New Testament. Their problem was that they were tempted to fall back uh, into Judaism and see Christ as an important person, but not that important. So this passage focuses on how does Jesus fit with the angels? What's the relationship between the two of them? Are they sort of on a par? Are they uh, just sort of close to each other? So his concern is not so much to show us about angels in this passage but to show us about Jesus. So if we spend the next half an hour talking about angels, then we'd miss the author's point entirely. His point is that the Son is greater than the angels, and that's our first point. Jesus is greater uh, than the angels. This is by far our longest point. But why why on earth does he even have to answer this? Well, there's a bit of confusion going on uh, with them. I say it's not about what angels are, um, but there's a confusion about the understanding of the gospel. So a uh, little bit of Greek for you this morning. Gospel, evangel. That's where we get our name uh, evangelical from, or evangelism, and all those different words. It literally means good news, good message. Uh, and if the gospel message is through Jesus, the evangel, is he just another messenger of that gospel, if you like? An angel. So you see that the word angel is in the word evangel. Uh, It's the idea of a message. So if if the big thing about Jesus is the gospel, is he just another messenger? Now we wrap all sorts of other things up with angels, don't we? But actually that's what the word means. Angel just means messenger. 
They're divine delivery boys, if you like. But is that all that Jesus is? Well, I mean, Muslims believe that. Joe's Witnesses believe that. But what does the Bible say? We saw last time, we learned seven things uh, about the Son. Uh, We learned that he was the king that was to come. We learned that he was the maker of the world. We learned that he was the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God, upholder of God's world, maker of purification, and the priest that was to come. And now what we have is seven supporting statements from the Old Testament. And they're top and tailed in the same way, uh, with the king to come and the priest to come. But there's no need to try and match up them as they're not like one-to-one things, that they're going to be exactly the same as we go through. Uh, But they start and end in the same way. Um, So we need to see if Jesus is just a a puffed-up paper boy, if he's just a divine uh, delivery boy. But actually, the first thing that we see with all these quotes uh, is that Jesus is the the sovereign king. The son is the sovereign king. Now, these two quotes that are there, Samuel, uh, sorry, Psalm chapter two, verse seven, and two Samuel at seven fourteen, they link together, don't they? They both talk about the son. But they're linked together even more closely. So let me read you uh, some of the stuff in context. I've got it up on the screen as well. From Psalm 2, this is it in a bit broader context to help us understand it. Psalm 2, uh, 6 to 8. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. What we have here is a promise of the Messiah King, the Messianic King from the line of David in that psalm. That's what the psalm as a whole is all about. So it's speaking about Jesus as the the big king, if you like, of the Old Testament that was uh, promised. And then the second quote, 2 Samuel 7, uh, 12 to 14, um, this is God speaking to David through the prophet Nathan. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house of my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So do you see that? It's more than just saying that Jesus is the son. It's not just taking a quote out of the Old Testament at random to do with a son. It's actually saying that Jesus is that Messiah king, as well as being son. He's the Messiah king from the line of David. And therefore, he is the son of God. And that's no mere title for Jesus. For the, the kings of Israel, it was a title. It was just something they were called. But Jesus really is the son of God. So in the context of the argument as a whole, he's greater than the angels because he is that king. He's the ruler of everything. And that applies to no angel. So he is uh, the sovereign king, but he's also uh, served and not servant. He served and not servant. Let me read to you the the quote from uh, Deuteronomy 32, uh, a little bit broader. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, uh, 39 to 43. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive, I wound and heal, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. The Greek translation that uh, the author is quoting translates the the word gods there as angels. 
And that makes sense if you think about it, because at the beginning of that passage it talks about how the fact there is no God beside God. Uh, so it doesn't make sense to have other gods. So it, it translates them as angels. And that phrase sometimes is used to refer to as angels. Uh, bizarrely, sometimes in the Bible it uses sons of God, which, uh, if you think about our argument that Jesus is the son, uh, it could get a bit confusing. But he is the son. The angels are just uh, created beings, if you like, here, rejoicing at the son. Um, some people think this is quoting Psalm 97, which is quite similar. But that's unlikely. There's a parallel in the situations that we have here. It talks about the firstborn being brought into the world, doesn't it, in our uh, passage uh, in Hebrews. And the word there for world isn't the normal word in Hebrew for world, uh, sorry, in Greek for world. Normally you use the word cosmos, uh, which is where we get our word cosmos from. Um, But really it's the word homeland that he's coming into. He's saying when the, the firstborn was brought into his homeland. So really this is more likely to be referring to heaven, when Jesus is being raised up to heaven. That's a big theme through the whole book of Hebrews. That's where the angels worship him. In Deuteronomy, the Israelites, called God's firstborn, are about to be taken into the promised land, their homeland. So there's a sort of parallel between the situations that makes it fit with Deuteronomy better than Psalm 97. But there's a bit of confusion, isn't there? Because both Psalm 97 and Deuteronomy 32 are referring to God. Now, let's be honest, if we were talking about the the deity of the Son, if we're talking about Jesus being God, this is not where we would go, is it? Because actually it presupposes that Jesus is God to show that the angels worship him, because it's talking about the angels worshipping God. But the thing is that the author of the Hebrews isn't writing to sceptics, is he? He's writing to Christians who at least on paper believe that Jesus is God, even if their hearts are moving away from that. Have you ever noticed, just as an aside, that your mind can believe one thing and that your heart can believe something else? You know something in your head, but sometimes your heart just travels away from it. And what do our actions normally follow? Well, we normally follow our hearts, don't we? But the author wants us, mind and heart, to see that Jesus is so much more than just a man. He is God, and the angels worship him. They serve him. He's not on a par with the angels. Angels, on the other hand... They are his servants. Uh, There's a quote there from uh, Psalm 104. I'll read you again a bit more context to help us. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendour and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams uh, of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He sets the earth on its foundations, so it should never be moved. See how that psalm is talking about the natural order of things. It's talking about the winds, it's talking about the waves, it's talking about God as creator. What it's showing us really is the angels are part of the natural order. They are God's ministers, they are God's messengers. He orders them around, like he does the wind. He directs them as he would do a fire. There's hints of him using them to shape the natural order as though the winds obey uh, through angels. But they're still part of that natural order. So they're servants of God. And that's emphasised by this. They're not served by God. 
So Jesus is served by the angels. They are ministers. He is the master. So he's served and not a servant. And then we see in the, the next pair of, of quotes, you see they come in pairs. Um, the son is sovereign creator. Uh, Psalm 45, 1-7 uh, says this. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach your awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. And then here comes a quote from Hebrews. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. This might ring a bell because we did this psalm only a few uh, months back when we are looking at a series in the book of Psalms. Uh, We see here that the man in the psalm is called God. Now in the original context it's referring to the king. Uh, Your throne, O God, uh, is forever and ever. It's it's a reference to the king. Uh, the idea was sort of that the king was the co-regent with God. But here in Hebrews, it takes on its full meaning as it's applied to Christ. He is the ultimate king who really is God. He's the one who really does have an everlasting throne. And he is rewarded for his righteousness and is anointed. He's Christed, if you like, Messiahed, if you like. He's declared to be God's chosen king. He is the God king. He is sovereign. Uh, so he's sovereign, but he's also eternal creator. Uh, this is Psalm 102, again with a bit more context. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hand. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will not pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. And these verses, the author takes and applies them to Jesus. Laying the foundations of the earth. Making the sky and space. And yet they all perish. Yet Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. That's a quote from Hebrews. When you read it in its original context, it's about God, isn't it? Yet again, through, uh, yet, yet again, Jesus is God, so it's okay to talk about him uh, like this. We tend to think, don't we, sometimes in the Old Testament, that it's just talking about God the Father. But it wasn't just him. The Son and the Spirit are there too. So when the Old Testament refers to God, we must remember it's the triune God, the Trinity that we're talking about. So whilst the angels are finite creatures, Jesus is the sovereign creator with no end. And then lastly, we get one quote by itself, uh, Psalm 110, which has already been uh, referred to in uh, the first section of, of Hebrews. And the sun is sat down here. So Psalm 110, verses 1, and I'll read 4 as well. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
The picture here is of the priest king who has sat down after finishing his priestly work. It is finished. Now Jesus has sat down. But the angels in the next verse, they're stood up, aren't they? Ministering, uh, going from place to place. But Jesus is sat down. There's nothing more to do in terms of his sacrifice, which was himself. Jesus is sat down, so he needn't be anxious. The work is done, the price is paid. Once and for all, for all who trust in him. The atonement that Jesus made, the sacrifice that he made, the service that he gave, was so superior to the angels that it need never be repeated. His work is better than the angels because it's over, it's finished. And all these things that we've seen prove that Jesus is greater than the angels. So let's just pause and adore him for these things. Jesus is all those wonderful things, sovereign king, served and not served, sovereign creator, sat down because he's finished his work. Isn't that enough to adore him? Isn't that enough to, to sit in wonder and stand in wonder of who he is? So he's seen that he's all these things, but there are a couple of other things that the author wants us to see. And these are much briefer points um, as we do. We want to see as well that he's the theme of the scriptures. It's crucial that we understand this. Let me ask you a question. If you were asked to pick an Old Testament passage that taught about Jesus, which one would you pick? What would be your go-to verse? In my head, I'm thinking, you know, Isaiah 53, uh, pierced for our transgressions. I'm thinking Micah chapter 5, you know, born in Bethlehem. Um, what about Genesis 3.15? That might be a one, you know, the one who would crush the serpent's head. But can you see how our author is giving us a much broader understanding of how the scriptures work. The author picks passages that, if we're honest, we would never go to, would we? If you were saying, write, write, write me a, a, a preach something about Jesus, where would you go? But it's not just the author that is doing this. What we have in Hebrews is the word of God. This is how God understands the Old Testament to work. And God understands the Old Testament as pointing us to Jesus. Now we've seen that the author never rips things out of context. We've seen that they fit in with the context of, of what they're saying and then apply them to Jesus. But we see how he understands things through the Davidic kings, through the promised Messiah, through the fact that Jesus is God. Yet he sees all these things as being about Jesus. So this really is part of his message to the Hebrews as he's writing to them. Jesus is not just another Bible story. He is the Bible's story. It's all about him. Now think back to our original readers. They're tempted to fall back into Old Testament religion. But understood properly by what he's telling them, the Old Testament is all about Jesus. The author is pointing them to the fact that a robust knowledge of the Old Testament doesn't send you away from Jesus. It brings you to him. So what are some of the implications for us? Well, the whole Bible is Trinitarian. The Trinity doesn't start in the New Testament. The Trinity was there even before day one. So when we read God in our Bibles or Lord in the Old Testament, we shouldn't just think God the Father automatically. The whole of the Trinity is there, the triune God. Now sometimes one will be more in mind than another. Sometimes it's quite clear it's talking about one or another. But when we think of the one, we think of the three. When we think of the three, we think of the one. So keep the Son and the Spirit in mind as you read the Old Testament, even if they're not mentioned specifically. 
Another implication is if we're reading the Old Testament, then we should be talking about Jesus, or certainly God the Son. If we don't understand it through Jesus and the Gospel, then we're not understanding it properly, and we're not preaching it properly. When Paul uh, preached the Old Testament for years before he became a Christian, not a lot really happened. When Paul preached the Old Testament for the years after he became a Christian, uh, he generally started a riot or a revival, didn't he? He got kicked out of synagogues for preaching the Old Testament. And I imagine it's not just one passage, is it, that he would be preaching. It would be understanding of the whole. So if we could preach this sermon or another sermon in a synagogue or a mosque without raising an eyebrow, then it isn't really a Christian sermon. We shouldn't be happy with it being preached like that. We shouldn't read it like that in our own time either. Because this is not just the realm of preachers, is it? We all read our Bibles and want to understand them. This isn't the realm of the expert. All of us should be reading the Bible thinking how it works through Jesus. But another implication that we see from this passage is that we don't need to shoehorn Jesus into the Old Testament. The author of the Hebrews uses proper context, doesn't he? And so should we. And there is an original context, the king, etc., all those different things that we've seen. It did have an original meaning, but a fuller meaning when we understand it through Jesus. There's a school of thought sometimes that you can just sort of put Jesus in there and ignore the original context. But we can't do that. These verses meant something to the original hearers when they were originally taught. So we mustn't ditch the context, but the context should help us get to Jesus. And then the last implication of the fact that he's the theme of scripture is that we should see the importance of Jesus. He's not just another Bible character. If you're here this morning and you're investigating Christianity, Jesus is not just another person among hundreds in the Bible. It's not like a hall of portraits where you've got, you know, Adam, Noah, Abraham, and then eventually you get to Jesus and then on to Paul and the rest of it. That's not how it works. Jesus is the owner of the hall like where the portraits portraits are hung. He's not just one in a number of saints days. I used to get frustrated at, I worked at a Catholic college uh, when I was trained to be a teacher. And, you know, they have Christmas, Michaelmas, St. David's Day, St. Patrick's Day, all the different saints days. And Christmas was just one of them. You know, this is Jesus' day and a list of a load. No, he's actually the reason for our calendar being AC, uh, AC? <laughs> that's, that's electric, isn't it? <laughs> B.C. and A.D. Uh, he, in fact, he's the author of time itself, isn't he? It's not like Jesus is even our favourite character. It's not like, you know, oh, I like David, I like Abraham, I like Jesus. He is where it's all going. He is what all those other people are pointing to. So if you're here investigating, if you want to understand <coughs> Christianity at all, you must understand Jesus. You must understand that Jesus is more than even the most important person who ever lived. For Christians here this morning, we mustn't let our day-to-day theology become Christless. Some Christians live and think as though Christ hasn't come. What might that look like? Well, it might be despairing in sin, as though Christ has not sat down, as though sin still had to be paid for through our despair, through our, our tears. Now, we do need to repent, but that doesn't pay for our sins. Christ has come and he has now sat down. It's finished. The penalty for your sin is finished. We need to live as though Jesus has come because he has come. Another way it might show itself is looking at the Old Testament promises as though they weren't all yes in Christ. 
looking for fulfilment elsewhere in today's events, missing out on the benefits of living under the new covenant. But Christ has come. Things have changed. We have passed from uh, BC to AD. Jesus is what God wrote his whole word about. He's the theme of the scriptures, and that in itself proves to us that he's greater than the angels. That can't be said about the angels, can he? That God wrote the whole scriptures about them. But other than the fact that he's so great, is there anything else we can take away? Well, there is one big uh, one to finish. He's the supporter of the saved. We see that in verse 14. This is the one non-quotation bit uh, there in our passage. And it's saying to us that angels are sent to us. Those who will inherit salvation. As Mike mentioned earlier, that's us if we're trusting in Jesus this morning. But it's worth thinking in the context of our passage, who sends them? It says that they're sent, but who sends them? Jesus does, doesn't he? God does. Jesus sends angels to help believers, the heirs of salvation. And that should be an encouragement to us this morning. You may have been visited by an angel. I mean, Peter was in the Bible. God sends an angel to rescue him from prison. John was visited by an angel. He sends an angel while he's on exile in exile on Patmos to encourage him. Certainly some of these Christians either have, have been visited by angels. In Hebrews 13 verse 2, it says that some have entertained angels without knowing it. So it might be that you've been visited by an angel. You might even be unaware that that's happened. No reason to think that they always act visibly. Who knows? It's one of those mysteries. We don't even know exactly how they help us. Perhaps we're not supposed to know. I mean, we have a few examples in Scripture, but they're by no means exhaustive. Angels are sort of on the fringes of Scripture, and that's okay. Uh, we don't need to know absolutely everything. God has given us all that we need to know. But the key with all that, having said that, you know, we might have been visited by angels and all those things, is not to become obsessed with angels. We're not to become angel spotters, seeing them everywhere. Now, they may be, uh, and we may never know where they are until uh, glory. But the key is to be thankful for Jesus for sending them, for giving us the things that we need. I mean, think about it. If it's angels that we get excited about, it would be a bit like getting a handwritten letter from the Queen through the post, and then be excited about the postman. No offence to postman. Um, but that's not where the action's at, is it? Jesus is sending these things. It's like, like being rescued by Lady Penelope from Thunderbirds. Uh, and they're turning up in a limousine, a pink limousine. You've watched Thunderbirds, haven't you? Some of you are nodding. Okay. Um, but getting more excited about Parker, the driver, uh, than her. But the fact is that Parker works for Lady Penelope. She's the one directing the action. She's the one we should be bothered about, if you like. And in the same way, Christians shouldn't be obsessed with angels... We should be obsessed by Jesus. They are servants. He's the master. He's the one driving the action. Now, these early Christians weren't in any danger of being obsessed with angels. Perhaps we're not. But we're all in danger of doing what they were doing. Of making Jesus less than he is. Of getting distracted by other things. Of making as much of other parts of our faith as we do of him. He's so much more than that, isn't he? He is working for our good, not just by sending angels, by directing circumstances, by sending people into our paths, by working by his spirit to make us more like himself. So in one sense, it doesn't really matter whether you've been visited by an angel or not. 
Someone far greater is working on your behalf, supporting the saved. Jesus, who is far greater than an angel, Jesus, who is Lord of the universe, dwells within us by his spirit. Isn't that even better than having uh, angels come to us? Jesus is Lord. It echoes through the whole of scripture. It echoes through the whole of creation. And that's the theme of our last song. Jesus is Lord. The cry that echoes through creation. Let's stand and sing how glorious our Jesus is.